We are in Revelation. Oops. Hang on. We we are in Revelation. But I'm on the wrong notes. We are in Revelation. That's right. That's it. That'll do it. We're in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. We're at, in the presence of God is where we are, with John, in heaven. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. That last little bit in verse 9 where it talks about the elders casting their crowns down, is the verbs are translated differently in various translations. Most translations translate the verb saying that this will happen in the future. In, in other words, the, the elders are going to do this. They are going to cast their crowns, crowns down and bow to the Lord. Other translations give the impression it's already happened. And other translations give the impression it is happening on a continual basis. So obviously, the verb is not very specific right there. So the tense of the verb is not specific. I think... Um, personally, I think it's a continual kind of thing, but you're on your own in terms of figuring out whether it's a past tense, present tense, or future tense action. But anyway, the focus here is the throne of God. And there are lots of descriptions in Scripture of the throne of God. And one of the things to remember is that when the, the throne of God is also where the glory of God sits. Okay, when God is sitting on wherever God is, that's where the glory of God is, right? And and you saw that back in the in the Old Testament with the Israelites, that it was the glory of God that would lead them, that would follow them, and that would settle on the tabernacle whenever they were to camp. So that glory of God is sitting around, it's surrounding, encompassing this throne. Look at your scripture references and we'll look at a couple of descriptions of the throne of God in scripture because it is remarkable how similar these are. People say they've never seen God. True, nobody can just look directly into his face, but a lot of people have seen the throne and the glory of God. Ezekiel 1 verse 4. And I looked, behold, a storm wind 
And that in various translations is a hurricane, a whirlwind, that's, you know, a wind, big wind, was coming from the north and a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light all around it. And in its midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of a fire. And within it were figures resembling four living beings. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they, that's the four creatures, would go in that direction. And the wheels, these are wheels that were on the ground beside each of the creatures, rose close beside them. For the spirit of those living creatures was in their wheels. Now, over the heads of the living creatures, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. There's a lot of parallels there to what we read in Revelation, right? A lot of, there's four living creatures, fire, thunder, rumblings, lightning, all that good stuff. There's, there's this radiance surrounding the throne and it refers to that expansive crystal, okay? Being right there at the base of the throne, basically. Look at what Daniel says when he sees a vision. This is a different prophet. Daniel 7, verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up And the Ancient of Days, that's God, took his seat. His throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were a burning fire. Now, you put those two together, and you begin to to understand that those wheels that are associated with the throne of God are are part of those four living creatures that constantly attend the throne. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Now, back in Exodus, when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness, they saw the glory of the Lord as a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke. But God gave them specific instructions about where his glory was going to be when they stopped to camp. And what he said was, you're going to build this moving tent and you're going to bring all the stuff that goes in it for my worship. And there's going, there were altars. There was a, a basin to wash in that was called a sea, by the way. And there was, there was a, a, basically a bread, a table of bread. But the, in the very interior, the most holy part of that tent tabernacle temple that they had was a box. That box was made out of special wood. It was made with poles to carry it so that no human hands would ever actually touch the box. They, they, then God himself gave specific instructions about how to decorate that box. And he said, this is, this is the ark, the ark of the covenant, the, ark, the, the, the evidence of my promise with you. And he had some things that he wanted put inside of it. But on top of it, It's what's called the mercy seat. Isn't that a lovely name for the throne of God? The mercy seat. And and where the mercy seat was, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, were to be two creatures crafted out of gold. 
And these creatures were cherubs. Now, in English, we have a word called cherub, and the plural is cherubs. The, the, uh, the old-fashioned plural for cherubs is cherubim. Okay? And so on top of this ark were these cherubim. And, he, and God said, make these cherubim so they're facing the mercy seat, the, where the glory of the Lord will settle. Make them where they have wings that come out and touch each other. And if we had read all 28 verses of that passage in Ezekiel that we just read, that I just gave you excerpts from, there is a part in that passage that says those four living creatures have wings, two of which they use to cover their body and two of which they stretch out to touch each other with. Just exactly like God described the cherubs that were to be made for his mercy seat in the physical representation of this. And in addition to that, cherubs were to be woven into the fabric and and they were carved in the decorations in various places of the tabernacle and later on the temple. The cherubs are always associated with the throne of God. Always. I've, I've given you, I'm not going to read you, that Exodus 25, 17 through 22 is the official version of those cherubs. I just gave you the, the Gail Evers condensed version of that. But um, another, another passage would be 1 Samuel 4, verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, which was where the ark was at this particular time. And from there, they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. There are a ton of scriptures, ton of passages in scripture that refer to the Lord of hosts sitting above the cherubim. Almost every time you see the reference to cherubim in the scripture, outside of the actual visions of them, and outside of the physical cherubim representation of them in the tabernacle, any other time in Psalms or Job or anywhere that you see somebody talking about the cherubim, it says the cherubim are below the throne of God. Okay. Now, in Revelation, we see the cherubim not described as being below the throne of God, but being around the throne of God. They definitely move because we know from other passages in Scripture that they move and they do things. For example, it was a cherub that was placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to guard it after man was cast out. So, are there more than one cherub? I mean, are there more than just these four? Or is somehow the throne of God connected with the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Doesn't say. We don't know. Um, and any pictures that you see, you've got to take with a grain of salt. Okay. So we're going to look and see what Scripture says about them, and then you can figure out what you think they say. Because there, there were uh, basically five, what, four? four visions, actual visions of cherub, cherubim, that were recorded in scripture where they were described in some way other than doing something, okay? They have, they, they would, you know, take coals of fire and do things, but people might not describe what, what they looked like. 
but there's Ezekiel gives us the best description and he gives it in two places in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10 and in chapter 10 which is a they were two different visions that he had in chapter 10 he says the cherubim he calls them cherubim and he says these are the same creatures I saw in my vision in chapter 1 okay so we know that but that both chapters are descriptions of the cherubim Isaiah has one verse in it that describes a creature and and he describes a creature that he calls seraphim all right it's the only place in the bible that that word is used if you look at the root of seraph what seraph means it has two meanings serpent or fiery okay which I think fiery is obviously the correct interpretation here. So what Isaiah was saying is, I saw fiery creatures, which definitely could be cherubim, right? And I think if you look at some of the specifics, it's one and the same. So my interpretation of this is cherubim and seraphim are the same. It's just seraphim is a descriptive term. Okay. Now let's look in your handout on cherubim and seraphim at some of the interesting comparisons what I've given you is a little X in each of the boxes where that particular characteristic is described, okay, and where they agree. Where, where it's blank, they are silent, okay? So we've talked about how Ezekiel and Isaiah identified these creatures as cherubim or seraphim. The, in both Revelation 4 that we just read and in Ezekiel, the, it says there's four of them around the throne of God. Ezekiel tells us there's an expanse like crystal above them, and above the expanse is the glory of God. Now, in Revelation, it was a little bit different, where they, they had moved, and they're next to the throne with the expanse of crystal all around them. But clearly, in the, in the vicinity of the throne is basically a sea of glass, a sea of crystal. Okay? They, Isaiah has them standing above the throne so you can see that they've moved below they've moved beside they've moved above okay so they are completely you know anywhere around the throne of God they are seen every single one of the passages makes a point of saying they are living well duh if you saw creatures you know they could have said I saw creatures around the throne right and we would have assumed they were living their very life is a characteristic that is overpowering for these creatures day and night they proclaim the holiness of the Lord aside from other things that they do both Revelation and Isaiah said actually quoted what they said and it was a a prayer of, of worship now Ezekiel and John in Revelation saw two different things Ezekiel said that they looked like humans they had human form and that the, each one of the, of the cherubim were just alike, and they each had four faces. Okay? Now, when John saw it, he, saw, he didn't say whether they were human-like or not. He just said, one looked like a, a lion, and one looked like an eagle, and one looked like a calf, and one looked like a man. Okay? So, does that mean he was seeing one side of each of them and didn't see, you know, the other three sides? Does it, you know, what does that mean? I don't know. Uh, I, I have trouble believing it's different creatures. 
you know. Maybe that, yes, exactly. They're spirits, okay? And these are spiritual representations of who they are. So, you're, you know, this is why I'm just showing you this so you can figure this out, okay? What, what you think? Because you also said that they had eyes all around them. Yes, and in fact, we're going to get to the eyes because just like each of the authors, each of the people who saw them made a point of saying these things were really alive. He said these things were really full of eyes. It wasn't just that they had eyes on them, which they did. They had eyes all over their wings. They had eyes under their wings. They had eyes in front of them, eyes behind them. But several times they, said, they used the word they were full of eyes. They were just full of eyes, inside kind of full of eyes. So, we, the, but definitely the, the face of the lion, the face of the, the calf, which is alternately translated calf, bull, or ox, depending on where you're looking at it, but it's all, you know, same kind of face. Uh, man, face of a man, face like an eagle. Okay? The only difference is in Ezekiel, there, in Ezekiel 10, he, he says that the face that's like a bull, he says it's a face of a cherub. He didn't say bull. Well, they're all cherubs, so duh. That just didn't help, okay? But in his earlier vision, he did say it was a face like a, a calf or a bull. Now, the other difference that we see is that Isaiah and John both saw six wings. They saw two wings, basically John gives us a better description, but two wings that come down in front, two wings that come down behind, and two wings that they used to fly. Okay. Ezekiel both times was very specific. They had four wings. Okay. Well, does that mean that's what they looked like at that moment? Does that mean he didn't see the wings that were behind him? You know, I don't know. So, but they all agree that two of the wings cover their body and two of the wings reach out very interesting the other thing that's interesting is their wings make a very loud sound these are not silent creatures they make a loud sound like the voice of God Almighty when they move their legs according to Ezekiel Ezekiel gives us a ton more information about them than any, any of the others he, he says they have legs they're straight like a man's legs, not like a calf's. Okay, they're straight like a man's legs, but they have feet that are like a calf's hoof and gleam. He says they ha- that under their wings they have hands, like a man's hands. And we know they have hands because they reach out and do things at various times in the scripture. They do not, Ezekiel says they don't turn when they move. Each face continually faces in its direction. And the wheels that are on the ground beside them that Ezekiel describes are described as being a wheel within a wheel. Now, that's not concentric wheels. It's a wheel like this and a wheel like that. You see? So, so it moves in any direction. You get the picture? There are perp- the wheels are perpendicular to each other, within each other. And they were in the, in the first vision, the throne was sitting on the ground. And therefore, the wheels were on the ground. The creatures were on the ground. Everybody's on the ground. But whenever the spirit, Ezekiel says, whenever the spirit moves, the creatures move with it. And whenever the creatures move, the wheels move. 
because the spirit, living spirit of the creatures is in the wheels. And the wheels were covered with eyes all around, and they were high and lofty. And there's some amazing descriptions of the speed with which they move. They precede the spirit of God wherever it goes. Neither the wheels nor the faces turn. They just move directly straight forward. They move swiftly like lightning. Now that's pretty swift. Burning coals of fire like torches with lightning flashing from them dart back and forth between the four creatures. And Ezekiel in one of his visions was actually sent in among the cherubim to gather up some burning coals that were then used in, as judgment over the city. Isaiah in his description was touched by one of the seraphim with a burning coal taken from the altar. Okay? They're constantly associated with white hot burning coal and fire and lightning. The wheels look like they're made of a sparkling precious stone and they are called, according to Ezekiel says, I heard them called. He heard somebody say something about the wheels and call them whirlwinds or whirling wheels. Their entire bodies, backs, hands, wings, and wheels are full of eyes. This is what John beheld. When he was taken up to heaven. Now, various commentators have found a correlation between the four faces of the cherubim and other things in scripture. And I'm going to give you an example of how you need to take commentary with a grain of salt. Everything I tell you guys that I get from some commentator that didn't come directly out of scripture, I try to verify independently for you to some other authoritative source. There is a commentator that I just really like a lot and has been so helpful. And in his book, he, you know, draws on the comments of other biblical scholars. And he's a world class, he's dead now, but he's a world class, world recognized biblical scholar. And he draws from other scholars. And he has a little section in his, in his book that talks about the fact that when that tabernacle of the Lord moved in the wilderness, the one that had the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim in it, whenever the glory of the Lord would settle down on the mercy seat and say, here's where I'm stopping, the Israelites were to camp. And they were to camp according to their tribes. And they didn't just 12 tribes circle around the tent in any old way. God wanted four tribes, one on each side, and then they kind of camped in concentric circles of, of four out from there. Okay? If you look at the tribe that was to camp in the east, which is the primary direction from a religious point of view, right? The tribe was the tribe of Judah. And the symbol of the tribe of Judah is the lion. If you look to the tribe that was to camp on the south, the first one in, the closest to the tabernacle. That was the tribe of Reuben. The symbol of the tribe of Reuben is a man. Okay. Now, these symbols are taken from Genesis 49, the blessing on the, the different tribes. But they have endured to this day. And if you go out into Judaica in the Internet and you look at, you know, they have banners for their and flags for their tribes. These are these are the symbols that still survive. The first tribe on the west was the tribe of Ephraim. 
The symbol of the tribe of Ephraim is an ox or a bull. The first tribe on the north was the symbol of Dan, who, according to this biblical scholar, whose symbol was the symbol of the eagle. Well, that's hogwash. When I looked it up, it isn't the eagle, never was the eagle, couldn't find an eagle anywhere. Okay? If I looked up Genesis 49, where all the other ones came from, and it said that Dan's symbol was a, a serpent that was laying in wait to attack a horse. And on the flags of the tribe of Dan, you see either a serpent or a horse nowadays. There was, but Dan kind of shifted around. Dan was, if you will, the black sheep of the tribes of Israel. They were accused of being cowards at various times and constantly doing things they shouldn't have been doing. And there is a different passage about Dan in Deuteronomy 33, verse 22, that describes Dan as a pouncing lion, a lion ready to pounce. In fact, a young lion ready to pounce. So you go back and you see the other face of the cherub is the face of an eagle. Well, in scripture, eagle can also be a vulture. Okay, the, the words are often used interchangeably. It could be an eagle, could be a vulture, you don't know. In any case, they're birds of prey and were considered unclean animals. Okay, they're birds of prey. Now, if you want to really stretch this metaphor and force it to fit, like Drusella trying to get her foot in Cinderella's shoe, you can say that the symbol of the tribe of Dan is of an animal waiting to strike, which would fit the serpent, the lion, the pouncing lion, and the eagle and the vulture, no matter how you interpret it. That whole feeling is what you get from the tribe of Dan. But boy, you had to watch these guys like a hawk, no pun intended, when you're... <laughs> When you're when you're doing your Bible study. So don't just just because and I found that in a lot of commentators. But it's it's like one person says it, another person copies it, another person refers to it, and pretty soon we all believe it. Okay? So so be sure to look it up for yourself. Another common interpretation, which is also, I think, iffy, is if you think about the four gospels and if you've studied the what the, the message of each of the four Gospels is, the message of Matthew is that Jesus Christ is king, the lion, right? Okay. Um, the message of the book of Matthew, Mark, of Mark is Jesus as servant. Okay. And that would be the ox, the bull, the domestic animal. Okay. The Matthew, Mark, Luke, the, the message of Luke is Jesus as the perfect man. Okay, and that would be the face of the man, right? And the fourth one is um, John, and that is Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God. And people say, well, that fits just right with the, with the eagle. I think both of those are stretching it, okay? But it's like you're seeing shadows in Scripture or echoes of patterns that originated with the throne of God, that I can believe. Okay? So, so uh, if we look at, then, Revelation, if you've read through the book, you'll know that at different, these judgments we're fixing to read kind of come in waves. They come in bunches. And at the end of each of those bunches is 
always thunder, lightning, earthquake, sometimes there's hailstorm. Okay, now think about it. All of those elements are described as being present in the throne of God. It's as if he is physically announcing his presence with the thunder, the lightning, the earthquake, the wind, right? Look at 1 Kings 19, verse 11. This is such a great verse. This is a passage where Elijah was pouting, okay, because he was being persecuted by Queen Jezebel and he was... All the other prophets had been killed and Elijah is really upset. Okay? So, the Lord says, this should be in your scripture references, hopefully. 1 Kings 19.11. And here's what it says. And Elijah was told, go stand on the mountain at attention before God. God will pass by. Just so you know you're not alone. Okay? God will pass by. And so he did that. A hurricane, a whirlwind, ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God. That's part of the presence of God, right? Those wheels are actually called whirlwinds. But God was not to be found in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But God was not in that earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire. But God was not in the fire. After all this display of his terrible majesty, and I think those were all part of the glory of God passing by, it wasn't God himself. God makes himself accessible to us, even in his terrible and awesome majesty. God wasn't in the fire, but after the fire was a gentle and quiet whisper. When Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak, went to the mouth of the cave, and stood there. A quiet voice asked, So Elijah, now tell me, what are you doing here? Notice that the elders, who also worship the living God, cast their crowns down before him. These are crowns that we know from the word they earned from overcoming probably horrible persecution. But these crowns, they're casting them down as worth nothing to them. They're giving them back and saying, we earned these crowns, but they are as nothing in the sight of your glory, Lord. Because all these crowns honor us, we don't deserve honor. Lord, all honor and glory belongs to you. And that is a fundamental, rock-bottom message of truth. Revelation 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong, that would be a mighty, powerful, or valiant angel, proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. That word book is scroll, obviously, in in the original translations. And what you're seeing is God holding in his right hand a scroll, and it's got seven seals on it. 
Now, back at, in Roman times, which was when this vision occurred, and we need to keep it in context of God is communicating to a man who lived in Roman times. So he's going to use Roman kind of symbols to, to communicate with him. Roman symbols as well as, you know, scriptural symbols. But in Roman times, the most early wills that, that they had were oral. They didn't even write them down. And to be valid... The will had to be declared in the presence of, you guessed it, seven witnesses. And it could never be changed once it was said. Now, as you can imagine, that didn't last very long. Because once the guy died, none of the seven witnesses could agree what he said. Okay. Okay. So pretty soon, they had to write wills down. And presumably sealed them with seven seals. Okay. However, I could not independently verify that fact. I did find it all over the place in various commentators that Roman wills were sealed with seven seals. In particular, the, the wills of the emperors Augustus and Vespasian, I think, was the other one. You know, two of them. And I looked and looked and looked and looked, and I just couldn't find any historical source that I believed that said any such thing. But I didn't find anything to the contrary either. Now, we do have an example from Scripture of the transfer of land back in Old Testament times. And it's worth looking at. It's back in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 9. And this was back when, when Jeremiah was a prophet to Israel when it was fixing to be annihilated and taken into captivity to Babylon. And the kings of of Babylon and you know who, whoever is attacking Jerusalem are surrounding the city. The city is under siege, and people are desperate. All right, nothing. You know what it's like on a day when war breaks out and the army is coming into your town. All you're thinking about is saving your own life. Right? You don't care about bringing your computer with you, or you know, you don't care about. <laughs> Maybe Jeff. But <laughs> grab the laptop. That's right. But you know, you know, all commerce and trade stops. It reminds me of 9-11. I was in New York City on 9-11. And commerce and trade ceased that day. Okay. And that is what has happened to Jerusalem at the time that Jeremiah is living. And God says, you know what, Jeremiah? I want to give a sign to the people that Jerusalem is mine and although she is going to be destroyed I will raise her again men will once more once more have commerce and trade in Jerusalem and so he said Jeremiah go spend your life savings on a piece of land now poor Jeremiah he had to do a lot of awful things and this was one of them this is how embarrassing is this so he had to go round up the people to go buy this land and here's what it said and I bought the field which was at Anathoth from my uncle's son and I weighed out the silver for him I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales then I took the deeds of purchase both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy and I gave the deed of purchase to, the son, to Baruch in the sight of my uncle's son and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase. 
before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. The way it worked is they wrote the terms of the transaction on this scroll. They copied it on a copy. They rolled them up, but only one of them was sealed. So they could always refer to the terms, and if there was ever a dispute, they would actually break the seals in a court of law and open it up to prove that the copy was the true copy. Okay? So this is the connotation that we're getting here for this scroll that's in the right hand of God. Now this scroll has writing on the inside of it and on the outside of it. It was another way of verifying the contents of a sealed scroll was rather than making a duplicate copy, they would write the, co- the information on the inside. They would turn it over and summarize it in a little paragraph on the outside, roll it up so that outside piece showed and seal it. Okay. That was another way that I found in various commentators that they did this. Now, I couldn't independently verify that. So you can either believe that the writing on the outside was a summary of what was on the inside or simply that God had a lot to say and he wrote on the front and the back of this scroll. Okay. In any case, the scroll is sealed with seven seals. The whole thing implies that this is his will. And they begin to look for who is worthy to open the will. Who would be worthy to open the will but the heir? Right? And in the next verses of Revelation, they search heaven. They couldn't find anybody worthy. They, could, they search earth. They couldn't find anybody worthy. They search under the earth. What would be under the earth? We learned this in class. Hades, the abode of the wicked dead. So heaven now is the abode of the saved, right? Dead. Earth is the abode of the living. Hades is the abode of the wicked dead. They looked everywhere and could find nobody worthy. Now I want you to look to see what John says in Revelation 5. Verse 4, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seals. Now that doesn't talk about his worthiness. It talks about his power. He overcame. He has the power to open this scroll. The lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David are both Old Testament titles referring to the Messiah. In Genesis 49, this is that same place where we found out that the lion was the symbol of Judah. This is where this, all, this title comes from. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of nations is his. That's a messianic prophecy right there. Then in Ezekiel 21, verse 20, you shall mark a way for the sword to come to Judah and to fortify Jerusalem. And you, O slain wicked one, prince of Israel. He's talking to, to Judah, right? 
whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, take off the crown. This will no longer be the same. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This also will be no more until he comes whose right it is and I will give it to him. So what it's saying here is that back in Genesis, God promised that Judah would rule forever until Christ came. Then they went off the deep end, became idol worshippers, sinned, did horrible things. And here in Ezekiel, God says, never mind, I'm going to take it away from you and keep it until Christ comes. Okay? This is the passage where he says that. So he's taking that scepter away and he's holding it in reserve until Christ comes. Then in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 10, is the root of David passage. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort, will return to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. If we look at the lineage of Jesus... From an earthly legal point of view, his father was Joseph, even though he was, you know, obviously the son of God. From a legal descendant point of view, he descended from Joseph, who descended from David, who was the son of Jesse, who descended from Judah. Okay, so that's why Christ is called the Lion of Judah, because he is the final king promised in these passages. He's called the Root of David. Okay, because he descended from David. And, and in Romans 15:12, I did not quote it for you, but if you look there, this passage from Isaiah is quoted specifically as being fulfilled by Christ. Okay? So now, go back to the scene in heaven. Revelation 5, verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing As if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Now, we already know that the seven eyes are the Holy Spirit. We did that in an earlier lesson, right? Now, the way the grammar works, the Holy Spirit, the uh, the seven, you know, eyes that are sent out into the earth could theoretically also refer to those seven horns but probably not because we already know that the eyes are specifically associated with with the holy spirit the seven spirits of god the seven horns i don't see any reason to think something differently than what we would have learned already in scripture in our study of daniel remember that horns were always kings dominion of some sort And Christ here is portrayed as having seven horns. He is a king with all dominion. Now, what's the significance of seven? Perfect. Complete. A work of God, usually, right? So he is the ultimate king, right? That's why I got the seven seals. I don't think anybody but Christ could open. 
That's right. So, so the comment was that's why there were seven seals, that no one but Christ could open them. That's a very perfectly legitimate translation of that, interpretation of that. So let's talk about the, the lamb. Now the slain lamb is a powerful symbol throughout scripture. And if you think back to Genesis 22, when Abraham was taking Isaac up the mountain, remember? God had told Abraham to sacrifice his very own son. The, prom- the only promise he had, and he didn't even have it until he was you know, 100 years old. Take him up and kill him. Give him back to the Lord as a sacrifice. Isaac, by this time, is a teenager. He is not a kid, like in the pictures. Isaac's going on this trip with his dad. His dad does sacrifices constantly. They've got the wood. They've got you know, everything they need for the sacrifice. His dad tells them they're going to go make a sacrifice. They go off. It's going to take them three days to get there. Isaac says, Dad, you forgot the animal. And, and Abraham says, don't you know how that hurt him, you know? Abraham says the Lord will provide. God, specifically what he said, is God will provide the lamb. In, in, in Exodus 12 the, is the story of the Passover, the first Passover. This was the tenth plague where the Lord said he was sending the angel of death to kill the firstborn of everything. The firstborn of the cattle, the firstborn of the men, firstborn of everything. And God said, tell the Israelites, in order for the angel of death to pass over them, to recognize that they belong to me, they must have a mark on their door when that angel shows up. That mark must be the blood of a lamb. And that's where the Passover started and became the most important feast day of all of Israel every year from then till now. And the Passover supper was the last supper that Christ took before he was slain for us. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verse 17 and 18, refers to our redemption in these same terms. He likens the blood of Christ to the blood of the sacrificial lamb. If you address the Father as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. During the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed, you are not purchased back from sin with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53, that whole chapter is a Messianic prophecy specifically compares Jesus at his, at his crucifixion to a lamb being led to slaughter. This, is, this particular passage is also quoted in Acts 8.32 as being fulfilled by Jesus. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth in self-defense. And finally, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here we see the Lamb, a slain Lamb, standing there amidst the throne, the elders, and the cherubim. 
Now, Dr. Arnold Fruchenbaum, who is another biblical scholar, says that the lamb as if slain, that little phrase as if slain, is a Greek idiom meaning one who has been resurrected. I didn't find anybody else who said that, but clearly that is the sense of the passage. That even though this lamb is slain, he is alive and standing. He has been resurrected. And he came, we're, we're going to, uh, on to verse 7 in Revelation. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of God who sat on the throne. And when Christ had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before him, before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Forgot to mention to you last week that one of the common interpretations of the elders is that in Israel, the tribe of Aaron, the priests, the tribe of Levi, were divided into 24 groups and they took turns ministering as priests to the Lord. So that's just another interpretation. Any way you look at it, they're representatives of God's people, no matter, no matter which way you come at it. But if you look back, I want you to look in two places. Revelation 5 verse 4 says no one else had been found worthy to open the seals, right? No one else had the authority to open the seals. If you look in the verse just before that, Revelation 5 verse 3, John says no one else had been found able to open the seals. That is, no one else had the power to open the seals. So think of this in your head. Think of a policeman standing in the street in front of a tank, an armored tank. The policeman has the authority to stop the tank, but not the power to. The tank has the power to run over that policeman, but not the authority to do so. Christ has both the authority and the power to open the seals. Now, remembering that the seal is the scroll that's been sealed is the will of God. What we have here is a scene of Christ receiving his inheritance. This is it. This is when he finally gets it. Christ receives his inheritance. We know this in part, not only because we can tell from the plain English sense of the passage that's what this means, but it's also the same scene occurs in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to to Christ, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will be destroyed. And later on in Daniel, Daniel also prophesies that saints will reign forever with Christ. Okay? Will not be destroyed. Did I say it wrong? His kingdom will never be destroyed. Yes, please correct me. In fact, I was going to chastise you guys from last week because last week 
I was sitting there talking to us, talking about Joseph, and I said, this was long before Israel was a nation and before Abraham. Well, I meant Moses. Why didn't anybody say Gail? Abraham was like a long time ago. I was talking about Moses, guys. <laughs> Whenever I say something like that, stop me. Just like, and I find that when I'm you know, listening to my tapes, I'll, say, I'll find I skip a word, and it's like a not. It's like a really important word. You guys got to say something so that these poor people who listen on the web aren't confused. <laughs> so anyway, look at what verse 5 in Revelation says what the elders are holding at this cataclysmic event. This is the scene of Jesus receiving his inheritance. What are the elders holding? They're holding bowls full of the prayers of the saints that have been collected. They've been heard as they've been said, but they have been collected as a sweet fragrance to be released when Christ inherits the kingdom. Doesn't that give you new meaning to the Lord's prayer? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders. And the number of these angels was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. We just finished chapter 5. It seems like a good place to stop because when we start chapter 6, we're going to go right in with the four horsemen of the apocalypse.